Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, brought to you by the Sportsman Channel. All hunting, all fishing, all the time. Contact your local network provider and ask about the Sportsman Channel today. Now here's your host of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, Christian Berg. Welcome to another episode of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. I'm editor Christian Berg, and our guest today is uh, a familiar name and familiar face in the magazine, to be sure. And he also happens to be our newest field editor. It's uh, Eddie Claypool, who is our new field editor for Hunting Solo. If you've been reading the magazine for a while, you know that Eddie is pretty much uh, our go-to guy when it comes to uh, hunting adventures on your own and planning and executing hunting adventures. And uh, it's great to have you on the show today, Eddie, and I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with us. Thank you. Um, Eddie, tell me a little bit or tell the, uh, the listeners a little bit about your background in bow hunting. I mean, you're, you're an Oklahoma guy, and I guess I should preface your answer by saying you're a guy who you know, is really a self-made hunter. And I think that, you know, certainly it's why I have an awful lot of respect for you. And I think the readers do too, because, you know, you're not, you're not a rich person who owns land all over the country. Uh, you're not necessarily, you know, best buddies with the people who own all the best hunting land around the country. And yet over the last 10 or 20 years, you've managed to put some tremendous trophies on the wall, really just by uh, kind of using your wits and guile and, and good old fashioned uh, woodsmanship skills. Yes, uh, I kind of, I grew up an only child, and thus I'm kind of a little independent and a little much of a, you know, goer and doer, adventuresome guy, and as I become a bow hunter in my teens, I, uh, you know, I had to do everything on my own. I just come from a blue-collar background, and uh, I started off hunting on public land here around my home in Oklahoma, and for many years just slowly matured a little bit as a person and a bow hunter, and as I got into my young adulthood and, and got married and got a job of my own and some income, I decided that, you know, I'd been reading the hunting magazines and everything, and I, I had a hankering for adventure, so just decided to load up and start, you know, going to places, driving, uh, diving in head first and seeing what, you know, would happen, and that's kind of the way it all began back in uh, around 1980. And, and, and it was basically... Uh you kind of started heading out west and looking at uh, elk and mule deer, I think, were what kind of really got you hooked on the, the traveling bow hunting. Is that right? Yes, it was. 1980, I, I just loaded my old Ford truck up and some gear, which back then you could throw about everything I owned in a duffel bag. But I headed out to Colorado with a friend of mine, and we stayed three weeks and just kind of lived like hobos, slept in the bed of the truck and in roadside parks and we finally found a few elk and mule deer and began to learn, and I didn't really know much about any of it back then, but everything was exciting, and, you know, that's what I'm proud of. I've learned every bit of what I've accomplished uh, just on my own. I, I really didn't have a mentor. I haven't really paid. Uh, I haven't been on any guided trips, and uh, I just enjoy the satisfaction of learning it all my, on my own, whether or not it's you know, I make mistakes or not. Uh, I'm just kind of independent. And as the years went by, you know, the Western hunting matured me a lot because, you know, I've always kind of said, I grew up a whitetail hunter, but if you can go out West and accomplish, you know, self hunts that you, my hunts used to last six weeks. I would, I would leave the house and be gone for six consecutive unbroken weeks 
on my own. And, you know, you just mature as a Western hunter. Whitetail, then, you know, they don't seem quite as hard for some reason. You're a lot tougher and you're a lot more wood savvy from being out there in the wilderness and the rugged terrain. And uh, so as I become a better Western hunter, my whitetail hunting matured also, and I got a lot more successful at it. And I also had the uh, knowledge that loading up a truck and heading on adventures will put you where the game is. And uh, with whitetails, you know, you got to go where the big ones are if you want to kill them. Absolutely. So, so in 1980, when you first mm-hmm. started this, you know, this adventure basically, which really yep. continues to this day with with you and, and your bow hunting travels, um, you know, you didn't know a whole lot. But right. uh, as you reflect back on the last, you know, almost 30 years now, um, what have you learned, Eddie, for you know, for an average, you know, weekend Joe who doesn't have yeah. the luxury of necessarily picking up and and going away for six weeks, but yeah. Um, you know, you kind of you kind of get a bug in your head of a particular species out west that you'd like to go and, and try and put a hunt together. You know, whether it be elk, mule deer, antelope, uh, blacktail, what have you. Um, yes. You don't have a lot of time and you don't have a lot of money. How right. would you advise somebody to sort of go about? I guess the first thing would just to be even to identify some states and some particular areas where you might have a reasonable chance of success. Is that kind of how you go about it? Yeah, it starts with research, and in today's world, the high-tech world, research part is easy nowadays. Back then, I had to dig and work to find out information. Now you can get on the computer and find out about anything, you know, fact-wise and number-wise you want from all types of sources. But, yeah, search out, you know, the best places. Any of the western states will produce, you know, pronghorn, mule deer, and elk. Uh, on public land for the average Joe, any of the western states. Uh, some of them, of course, are known for more trophies, and uh, usually in this day and age, that means application processes and years of waiting. So, yeah, get the technical part started immediately if you're wanting to go, and just be sure to remember that uh, you do not have to go guided to have a good trip. Uh, if your time is limited, there's nothing wrong with going guided. Uh, I know there's a market for that. But if you're the fellow that can come up with a couple of weeks each year to go west and will be patient enough to spend a few years to build up the gear and build up the experience, then you can, you can successfully do it on your own. And uh, two weeks is a minimum to me on an elk trip if it's a do-it-yourself hunt. And if you add the trophy status part onto it, you better, you know maybe three weeks if possible because public land trophies are hard to come by most of the big bulls and the big bucks we see out west a lot of them are off of ranches and you know managed properties uh if you have money you can access that but if you're if you're a blue collar guy like me number one you don't have the money to do it number two even if you did have the money you don't want to spend it because you just want to go do it yourself just remember that that is accessible to anybody with the uh, desire and the drive to make it happen, it does take some work all year. It's an around-the-year deal to prepare for, but it can be done. I'm living proof of it. I do it every year, and uh, it's still accessible even in this day and time to go kill good public land trophy now, Western animals. Now, how do you identify an area? Like, let's just say, for example, okay, Colorado. 
yeah. Colorado has the biggest elk population, I am pretty sure, of any state, sure. Uh, sure. you know, here in the U.S. You say, okay, I'm going to go to Colorado and, and, and do a, a self-hunt. But obviously, there's lots of different units throughout the state. Some are over-the-counter. Some are limited draw. Some uh, maybe are known for you know producing really good animals, and other ones maybe don't have a very good reputation. Uh, I guess you know maybe there's a couple parts to this question. I guess first and foremost, you got to kind of decide what kind of a hunt you know, do you want to have maybe going in? Do you want a meat sure. or a trophy hunt? And then once you've answered that question, how do you go about, Eddie, trying to decide exactly, you know, where you might want to apply for a tag? Do you really research, you know, what your odds of drawing are, how many points you need, how many years it might take you to get a, a tag in a particular unit? And what kind of resources do you use to find all that information? You know, most states, western states, produce a big game synopsis report that you can either re- quest from them or they will post on their website each year and it's all of the uh, units all the species the applications the numbers uh, the harvest data and everything and you know this can be accessed through any game and fish department and you can also call biologists and talk to them and get specific information on specific areas but there are so many sources to pin down trophy units if your goal is a trophy every single state has its specific areas that even if you know, like Colorado, there are certain units that are strictly managed for better bulls, better bucks. Um, those units are easy to figure out by looking at their reports. And you can also go to, you know, the game uh, records book, the uh, Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young book, and look at where the trophies have come from. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, combine it all into a package to where you pick out a unit or two. In those states, you're going to have to apply for a number of years for those specific units to get preference points. Uh, states like Arizona and others that are some more well-known for their better class of, you know, trophy animal, uh, those are no-brainers. Uh, the, the sources there that will point you toward the right units are just as simple as this, that big game synopsis report will show you exactly where the trophies come from and tell you how many years it takes to, to draw into such a unit. Right. So your your kind of advice for people really is to figure out what you want to do and yes. then and then identify, you know, maybe two or three states that have areas that might let you accomplish that and focus yes. on those two or three each year because that way, you know, over a period of time you're going to build up some points and, and, you know, kind of be assured that, you know, you might not hunt this year or next year, but maybe starting in year three and going forward, you know, you have a good chance of maybe getting a, a hunt in just about every year as you build up those points. Yeah, it's kind of a two-pronged process. You might, you know, lay down a long-term strategy for building points and hunting trophies, while at the same time you pick a few states where you can go on a just a yearly hunt. Colorado produces a over-the-counter, you know, uh, archery elk tag that can be partaken in every year and you know it's not natural for anybody that hasn't hunted elk that are that's wanting to start doing it on their own it's not natural for them to want to start right at the top of the pile and immediately have to kill the biggest bull around but it doesn't hurt to start planning and building up points in the states that will do that for you but you can go to colorado you can go to like idaho i think uh there are a number of other states. I believe Oregon, you know, Oregon and Washington has a couple of species of elk, and I believe those states uh, possibly produce some uh, over-the-counter tags. And you can hunt each year and go ahead and get the ball rolling and get some experience under your belt. And then, you know, you'll be much more prepared when you draw those quality tags and the quality units. Sure. 
And what about, you know, just as kind of an aside here uh, with whitetails as well. I mean, I know from the articles that you've written, you know, for us here at the magazine, you've had some tremendous uh, do-it-yourself whitetail hunts in in the Midwest and uh, uh, the central part of the country, you know, from Oklahoma up into Nebraska, Kansas, what have you. And and you've done those hunts on public land too. Uh, What are some of the real, you know, in your mind, sort of undiscovered uh, jewels or relatively under-hunted areas where you can still have some really high-quality uh, whitetail hunting kind of on your own? Well, I tell you, we all know about the Midwest at the Corn Belt through, you know, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, and Kansas zone, and it's just, you know, it's been exploited heavily in the last 10 years. The commercialization of the hunting there is pretty serious outfitting, and, and even it's gone as deep as down to the dirt farmers there even to where, you know, you it's getting real hard to find places to hunt there anymore. I was fortunate enough to get to a lot of those states years ago and just knock on doors and gain access to hunt, you know, on some private ground by just, you know, word of mouth and working for a farmer. Nowadays, that's very limited. It's still possible, but the time to be invested to find that is pretty intense, and that's why if you're going to the more premium locations for big whitetails, you probably... You know, unless you have a lot of time to invest to drive out there maybe a couple of times a year for a few days and start gaining access, then you may be best served to go on an outfitted hunt. But I myself, uh, I'm not bashful, and I have more time than brains or money, so I usually just <laughs> load up and head out to these, you know, states that um, are the premium ones, and eventually I have always been able to find access to property somewhere. I, I did finally... Uh, invest a few dollars in a lease uh, about three years ago. It was the first time I've ever spent a dime to hunt anywhere on Whitetail. But, um, you know, I've just lost so many of my good places over the years to people coming along with money or outfitters leasing up. And when I found a good place after the third or fourth process of losing ground, I just decided to tie it down a little bit. And I, So I won't, you know, go so far as to say that I haven't invested in a lease. I have in the last few years and. uh you know, it just gives me a little peace of mind to have a solid place because I don't have the kind of money it takes to purchase the ground right now. Sure. And you've also discovered, though, some pretty good western whitetail yes. hunting, right? I mean, you just got oh, that yes. story for us uh, on your Montana trip, Big Sky Book. Yes. And uh, there are a lot of areas, like you said, that aren't as well-known, as, as overhyped, you know, right. as the Midwest were. Yes. There's still some really good whitetail hunting in other areas. Oh, definitely. There is a lot of stuff that's definitely still in this day is still not exploited as heavily. Now, it's not maybe going to be as cream of the crop, but the resource is still there. Like uh, any of the Dakotas and Nebraska, uh, and, and as you move out west, many of our western states have some fairly unpublicized whitetail resources. Like, you know, Montana is known, but there is such big country there with such a large amount of deer in so many types of habitat, Idaho, uh, Wyoming, uh, you can even get into Washington, you know, eastern Washington and stuff. There's there's whitetail resources out there that if a guy is willing to go and take the time to crack the egg, he can get in. And, uh, you know, any of those states that I just mentioned are not yet exploited commercially as heavily as the Midwest. And, uh, I travel to uh, some of those each year, and I'm I'm continually looking for new uh, honey holes just to lay down roots. Yeah, I know you you certainly are, and you've always got your radar on. Uh, Yeah. Let me me move into now the... 
the preparation for the actual hunt. Um, you know, once you've identified an area or, you, you know, you've, you've either drawn a tag or you've got an area identified where you know you can get an over-the-counter tag when you get there. Okay, so now you've basically put some dates down on a calendar and, and you know, you know, where you're going hunting and what you're hunting for. Uh, I know, you know, because I know you a little bit, but I'm sure that you don't do a whole lot of uh, flying to these hunts, okay? You pack up your truck and you drive wherever it is, even if it's, you know, 800 or 1,000 miles miles and actually there's probably a lot of practical advantages to that isn't there Eddie because you you can bring whatever you think you need to bring for your hunt and be prepared to stay for a while if that's what yes. you want to do absolutely total self-sufficiency and independence is tremendous because uh, it's really the what you need when you're in a new area you've got to go with the flow day by day you've got to make decisions every day on where you're going to be and what you're going to do and and independence and self-sufficiency will will make or break a trip and yes you know even you know if it means driving 24 hours around the clock to get somewhere you know i usually go i have a little pickup camper in any kind of acceptable weather i stay in it and you know i've had to white tail hunt in you know below zero and usually i will try to find me a little you know cheapo depot motel somewhere and stay in it but overall my white tail trips are so inexpensive it's unbelievable other than the price of the admission for the tag and the uh, fuel to get there and back i invest virtually no funds in my trips uh, i can go and stay two weeks for a couple hundred dollars other than to getting there and getting back and you know the price of the tag but uh once you get there you know you my first destination is like usually the county courthouse and i will go and get aerial photos of the areas that i've narrowed down and i will also uh usually purchase a a, a plat book, a land ownership book of the county I'm in, and between those two, you're equipped to start, you know, researching the pieces of ground out and finding ownership and gaining access to it. So, uh, a land ownership book along with aerial photos are just vital parts of a trip to any new destination. And uh, so then, once you're actually on the arrive in the area and you've got that stuff, uh, you, I know you always like to set up a pretty good uh, camp and, and try and find the best area you can to do that. And a lot of times you bring, uh, I guess, a, a mule or two along with you if you're doing a, you know, a western type hunt. Um, where do you usually stay? Do you stay uh, like on a national forest or state forest land, uh, places where you can set up camp just for the cost of a permit or something like that? Yes, I'm usually my western hunts, especially for anything dealing with you know, pronghorn, antelope, or elk. I, there's, you know, plenty of public land, national forest ground or BOM ground that I, I, I am camping on and spending all my time on. I just don't really hunt any of my western species on private land. Uh, even whitetail, western-wise, I usually always hunt them on public land. Uh, whitetail, you know, in some of the states um, that are kind of high plains states, such as Dakotas and Nebraska and, you know, Montana, eastern montana and eastern wyoming i will often just stay in there's always public places to stay somewhere there's there's parks there's um you know there's just pieces of ground even in heavily privatized areas where you can always camp and you know i've i've bent the rules a few times i've spent many a night just parked in a like a city park or even in a cemetery before <laughs> uh just for a place to 
you know, park my truck. Because when I'm on the move day by day by day, you know, searching out access and searching out quality hunting spots, it is hard to lay down at a base camp at that time. A lot of times the first year I go to a new area, I may not actually be able to set up much of a base camp because I'll be moving it too much. And I just live right out of my truck and, and beat the back roads down and uh, stop at all the little cafes and learn to, you know, visit with the locals. And, you know, eventually you're going to get doors open to you that will allow you to lay down roots in a spot. And then I, I just set up a decent base camp consisting of like a little cook shack and, uh, you know, sleep in my camper in my truck and just, you know, enjoy the great outdoors. So when you head to an area when you head out for a two or three week hunt eddie it's pretty obvious that once you arrive in the area you're not exactly going to you know throw your camo on and grab your bow the very next morning and be you know into a the the thick of a prime hunt it, it takes you some time like you say to cultivate that that access and what have you how much how much time do you typically you know kind of plan into your mindset you know, when you get somewhere, okay, you say, I know I'm going to need the first, you know, three days or five days or whatever it is to uh, to do those kind of things. Well, I kind of make sure the first part of the equation is that I don't pick out too many areas to try to explore because I've common found commonly found myself with too many places moving too often, and even if that's just one county, that's too much ground on a typical whitetail trip really make sure that you try to find out the very best area or two that you want to spend your time so that you're not trying to jump around and never accomplish anything serious in any one spot but once I have gotten to you know an area that I'm going to spend my time in on my first trip to a brand new area I literally do not set it in my heart or mind to have to kill a deer on my first two-week trip Um, if it takes me two weeks to get completely in with the locals, get access to two or three pieces of ground, scout those pieces of ground effectively, and, and prepare myself to kill, then that that is a, a sacrifice I'm willing to make because that could be a many-year um, reward coming up. Uh, if I can get in some hunting in the second week of a two-week trip, more I, what I'll often do is run into it with the first place or two I can get into, throw a stand or two up, then I will go ahead and maybe hunt that stand or two quickly in the morning and evening and spend them all the middle of the day gaining new places and scouting new places. So, you know, you can kind of begin your hunt your first year, and I have many times, probably half of the time, I've been able to harvest good animals on my first trip to a new area, but sometimes it was the second year before I really got the ball rolling the way I wanted it to. Now I hear these stories of, you know, what you're saying as far as, uh, you're rolling through the the back roads and stopping at the diners and uh, yeah. striking up conversations with people. And it just kind of cracks me up thinking about it because, you know, I talk to people even just right here, you know, in the area where I live. And it's a common complaint that you hear from hunters. I'm sure you hear the same thing in Oklahoma. Even locals, people who live, you know, in the area where they want to hunt, and they complain that, you know, they just don't have anywhere to hunt and they can't find anywhere to hunt. And I always tell them, you know, chances are, locally you probably know somebody already who's got some land that you could hunt you just haven't thought of you know asking them yet but when you're coming into a totally new area and you literally don't know anybody in these areas uh tell me a couple stories about you know interesting things that you've had happen how do you how do you go about 
you know, going from a, a total stranger to a guy who's invited to put up a tree stand on the back 40? Well, one that always is ingrained in my mind forever is a strange way it all shook out one time. The first year I ever went to Illinois, uh, I'm not sure what year that was, but it would have been back probably around the early 90s. Uh, Pike County wasn't quite as famous as it is now, and I went up there and just started driving uh, cold turkey down some county roads, and it was the cold of November. It was a cold, wet, snowy day, and I was driving down a winding gravel road down a hollow and i happened to glance off to my right and there was this fellow out there uh in a hog lot working his hogs and so i just stopped and jumped out of the truck and went out there and went up to him and started helping him a little bit and then we got to talking and within a period of time uh, he had invited me up to his place to sit down and drink a cup of coffee and we visited a little bit and you know i was just uh a redneck out of my element, and he was just no simple farmer, kind of a Amish man that was looking for somebody to help him with some of his chores. We got on the same page, and within a few weeks, I had access to about 800 acres of some of the primest whitetail hunt ground in Pike County and uh, maintained a long-term relationship with the gentleman. And, uh, you know, it was just a matter of throwing my warm body out there and hoping for fate and luck to take the you know, a good swing in my direction. And, you know, there's other times that I've driven for days, uh, got rejected and, you know, cussed out almost by people. But, you know, I, I just believe that the pursuit is worth, the, you know, the sacrifice. So, you know, it, just stay out there, keep at it. Uh, God will definitely send some good blows and some bad ones. you got to be thick-skinned and take it and roll with punches. <laughs> Gotcha, gotcha. So yeah, that's what I was gonna say. You gotta, you gotta have some perseverance out there. Yeah. You know, if you, if you give up easy, you're not gonna get anywhere, right? Well, I'm a very much of a loner guy. I'm not a people person, genuinely. I I don't, you know, I'm kind of introverted, and it's hard for me to, you know, deal with the public. But you know, when you got a passion to bow hunt, you'll find a way to make it happen. And so you, you just gotta keep knocking, knocking away. <laughs> And, 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 you know, I think certainly with you, uh, but with a lot of people, you know, I, I can kind of relate to it in my own hunting experiences because, uh, you know, as somebody who's been doing the outdoor writing for a while and, and uh, you do get invitations to go to some neat places and have some outfitted trips, but, you know, there's something special about, you know, hunting sort of your own little neck of the woods back home where you've set the stands and you've done the scouting and you've run the trail cameras and you got a little bit of your own game plan and, and you know, and if you if you win or you lose, you know, you kill a big one or, or you just take a doe even, you know, you get a real sense of satisfaction out of that. Why don't you tell us, Eddie, a little bit about the you know the satisfaction that you've really come to appreciate over the years with you know just uh, like you say you know come win lose or draw you know you did it your yeah. way yeah uh i tell you i i've fantasized with the best of bow hunters on these exotic trips exotic animals you know i've been privileged to get to go to alaska a couple of times on do-it-yourself trips but, you know, there's some things you just can't hunt on your own, and you, some things, honestly, you can't hardly hunt without quite a bit of money. But, uh, you know, I probably may go to my grave without having hunted those animals. But in the, in the long run, as a North American bow hunter, if you can access or you can access the main species, you know, white-tailed mule deer, antelope and elk, 
and there's nothing greater going on those wild, uh, like a doll sheep hunt or a, you know, you call moose or something is great. But my satisfaction comes from just seeing new country, tackling it on my own, ciphering out everything about the habitat and the animal, meeting the people. I just love to live in the outdoors and, you know, in this high-tech world and civilization that we deal with now, I can't wait to get away from it and recharge my batteries. And to me, you know, I dream of those exotic hunts, but if I don't ever get to go on them, I'll have my uh, heart will be full of memories and, and good times from just being an average hunter of the average species here that everybody can access. And uh, so, you know, dreaming is good, but be happy with what you can do. Be a realist and get get what you can do done and do it right and learn it. And you'll, the satisfaction gleaned is, to me, what when you when you lay your head down each evening, that is what makes you sleep deep and, and comfortably is knowing that you went out there and did it on your own. And uh, if you don't get to pursue the other guided exotic species, don't let it eat away at you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, Eddie, I, I really think that, uh, you know, folks uh, appreciate the, um, you know, the commitment that you have to doing the hunts, the way that you do them. I, I think that, you know that hardcore independent nature that you have and the the effort the time the commitment that you you put into your hunts really comes through in your articles and uh i think it's been you know a neat opportunity to to talk about that a little bit today All right, i i want to move briefly in a little bit of a different direction uh kind of on the same topic but i think folks are interested maybe to to get to know a little bit more uh, about how you actually go about do some some of your hunting. The first question I have, Eddie, is uh, when do you start hunting each year, and how many days, weeks, or months per you know fall and winter do you spend away from home every year? You know, I kind of break my season down into about three compartments: early, mid, and late season. And my early season stuff is usually always western. Um, I will start sometimes as early as early to mid-August, depending on the species. Some pronghorn and some mule deer huts begin, you know, mid-August. And, uh, you know, depending on the tag situation, if I've drawn, I will hunt sometimes as early as mid-August. September is a month that's non-negotiable with me because it includes all the western seasons, elk and mule deer. And I'm pretty well going to be gone away from home most of September. now, you know, my child, my child is raised and on her own, and I have a, a good hunting partner for a wife, and we just, you know, manage our time to where we can be gone most of September. So I, most of September, I'm usually gone in that mountain hunt zone. I'll spend four to five weeks a year out west anymore, I, at least, sometimes a little more. Then I come home, and I use October as kind of a downtime uh, to recover. I'll usually be mentally and physically pretty well beaten down from the western hunts, and I, I recover and enjoy the first cool breezes of autumn in, in Oklahoma and get some of my riding done and, you know, get back with family and get things stocked up so that come November I'm not going to be seen again for about four weeks probably, and uh most of all November, beginning the first through the end of the month, I'm going to be in a tree somewhere every morning and evening, except for, you know, emergency or <laughs> holiday. But uh, 
November's non-negotiable, and then December's kind of a down month for me. I, I will hunt whitetails, but only on a uh, semi-hardcore uh, scale in. And I start turning my uh, mind toward what I call my late season. And my late season always used to consider or just be considered eastern whitetails come up until in January. But in the past number of years, I've kind of started going west again and hunting the little cows deer out west, which are whitetails. But um, I spend most of uh, December preparing for that. Sometimes I drive out on a 10-day scout or something in December and prepare for my cows deer season, which will amount to usually the month of January. And by the end of January, I wrap my season up and start looking for, you know, turkeys in the spring. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it sounds, I, yeah, it sounds I, like you keep a schedule that's uh, pretty much the envy of uh, any of us, Eddie. Uh, it is. I, I'm blessed beyond description. How, how do you manage to uh, pay all the bills back home when you're on the road like that? <laughs> well, you, as you probably know, and I know you know, it isn't done by being an outdoor writer, but I have been a construction worker all my life, and I have a union book where I can work kind of a lot of hours and then take time off. And so I work a lot of hours when I work, and then I also work through my wife's business. She has a small real estate company, and I do a fixing up of many of her foreclosed properties for so you know i'm kind of uh, ace of all trades and master of none but you know it's great because i don't do any one certain thing too long i jump around i have a lot of different things and then i get a lot of time to hunt fish camp and so i just kind of consider myself uh living the life of a king actually Oh, I, I don't think you'd find too many people to argue with you. Now, now the next thing I want to kind of to ask you about, and this is this is a pretty open-ended question, but I I'm just I just know Eddie that you have some good stuff to offer people here, and what I want to ask you is actually about some of the some of the gear uh, and the archery setup that you use because you know it's funny we've got uh, you know a bunch of folks who are real regular writers for the magazine of course uh, and a couple of them you know especially um, Randy Almer and Bill Winky uh, always have a column you know with center shots and and, and full draw about yeah. shooting and 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 equipment and gear and, and tuning and so we get a pretty steady diet of their advice, which is excellent, and uh, I know that the readers really appreciate it. But, you know, your niche with the magazine is more of, you know, bringing us on these adventures that you're having alongside you and really living the whole experience. So you don't tend to spend a whole lot of time in your articles, you know, talking about the gear that you use. But it's pretty obvious from the success that you've had uh, and, and the amount of hunting that you do that for sure, you know, you know your stuff when it comes to archery. So I just kind of wanted to give you a chance to maybe go into an area that you don't get much of an opportunity to do in the magazine and talk to us a little bit about what experience, you know, over the years has told you about what kind of uh, equipment you like to carry in the field and, and, you know, something that you might be able to offer to folks who are listening about, you know, being more effective with their gear and being a more uh, efficient bow hunter. Yes, well, I'll tell you, you know, gear is a necessity, and it definitely makes a guy's life easier. But before I start on gear, I'd like to just go with kind of an adage that I live by, and that is gear does not the hunter make. Uh, the hunter is an outdoorsman, and that's what will make your success in the outdoors. The gear can enhance it, can make it easier, can make you more effective, but it will not make you as a hunter. You have to become an outdoorsman. Okay, with that said, now as far as gear goes, there's no doubt that I refined mine down over the years, and uh, 
the main qualifications for stuff that goes with me is dependability, ruggedness, in other words, it's going to last. I don't like problems. I don't like surprises. I refine all that out of my stuff, and I've made plenty of boobs over the years to get a lot of the stuff that's not dependable out of my gear bag. As far as a bow, I've been with Matthews for a lot of years, and I've shot about every major company out there. They all make good equipment, but I've not found any that's more dependable and better performance than Matthews. That's why I shoot their equipment, because I believe in it, and it performs. You know, arrows and broadheads is is everybody's preference. I use um, Carbon Express Aramid shafts. They're as indestructible as anything on the market, and I... I put my equipment through horrendous tests, uh, strapping it on mules and dragging it through brush and dropping it, you know, in rock slides. And I got to have stuff that will last. I'm not a big expandable broadhead man because I get my fixed blade heads to fly fine and they're rugged. I'm a muzzy shooter, which is old timey, rugged, dependable, you know, mm-hmm. replaceable Absolutely. blade head, you know. And yep. I, if you put the broadhead where it's supposed to be, you just harvested your animal. That's far more important than all the arguments for, pro, or con, and all this broadhead debate. If you put a broadhead where it's supposed to be, it will it will harvest your animal. So I believe in a dependability. I use a very rugged outdoor camping gear. You know, lots of the top name uh, mountaineering quality backpacks, tents, sleeping bags. You know, there's any of the top mountaineering gear there is hard to beat you're not going to go wrong it is expensive it's a one in a lifetime investment mm-hmm. but you know when you're living off the land in rugged wilderness country you can't cut corners there uh it's not like whitetail hunting where you can run back to the truck and get warm and change clothes you know go ahead and if you're a western hunter do it yourself save your greenbacks buy the top end stuff optics included because it will more than pay you back over the years than versus the cheaper stuff. Um, and then as far as, you know, just support gear, my clothing, I try to go with the high tech as you can get. Very top-end, rugged, quality synthetic gear. And, uh, you know, as far as camo patterns, I believe that's up to everybody. There's more camo patterns out there than you can shake a stick at and, I think the biggest thing in camo is a, a very contrasting large pattern that at a distance doesn't bob up and look like a real light or a real dark. Mm-hmm. You know, any, anything that's a good contrasting pattern. And, uh, you know, I never have placed all my emphasis on being a techno freak, and uh, I believe in just putting together good dependable gear that, you know, on my whitetail, I rarely shoot a whitetail deer ever that's even at a range of 30 yards. So, you know, I don't have to drive nails at 70. Uh, even on my western hunts, I keep myself within my realm of common sense, and I know where that is, and it's different for everybody. Don't take hope shots unless you know it's a certain kill. Don't take it, because even with certain kill shots, you're going to flub a few of them. Right. Uh, you know, pe- so. People are, I'm sure, curious. What, mm-hmm. what do you sort of, I mean, I know it varies depending mm-hmm. on terrain and weather and things like that, but generally speaking, what do you kind of have in your mind, Eddie, as your maximum effective range? You know, under perfect conditions, I consider my 
maximum effective range to be approximately 50 yards because keeping it in an eight-inch circle every single time, uh, I pretty well can do that. I can shoot real tight groups usually out to 50 yards. But when I get a zinger, I call it, that's outside that eight-inch ring, uh, and that starts occurring usually at a sometimes at 60, then I don't accept that because that was a wounded or missed animal. It was a poor shot. So out to 50 yards on my western hunts under perfect conditions, range known, I am extremely effective to kill things out to 50 yards. And um, another thing that I always like to ask folks, I think people are just curious because uh, sometimes I think folks have the impression that everyone who is an outdoor writer or is a hunter on television is that we're all he-men and we pull yeah. 85 pounds and shoot you know, 330 feet per second. Um, how, how, what kind of a draw weight do you pull, Eddie, and do you have any idea what kind of a velocity you get off of your, your hunting rig? Yeah, I do just a little bit of research there so that I can speak you know, a little bit qualified. I shoot a, a total hunting arrow weight of about 450 grains, which is pretty heavy nowadays, but it's, you know, it's a good rounded weight for me. And nowadays I'm shooting it at a 70-pound draw weight and a 29-inch draw length. And with my Matthew switchback, it's launching that arrow at about 260 to 65 feet a second. And um, I've shot faster, but I I seem to have a little bit of tuning problems when I get up in that 290 you know range yeah, or above. Yeah, and I'm going to guess without doing the numbers here because I can't in my head, but I'm going to guess that even at that speed, which is, you know, plenty fast enough as far as I'm concerned, you're, you're probably getting every bit of 70 foot-pounds of kinetic energy out of that, that era. Yeah, so. I think you're correct. It, you know, I have shot these elk for countless years with everything from, you know, I used to actually take physically, this hard to believe, but I did used to physically hunt with a 90-pound draw weight on a compound bow. And, uh, you know, to me... That did not really give me any better penetration. I was shooting a giantly heavy arrow, had tremendous foot-pounds of energy, but for some reason, it, it, you can't get around the law of physics. I don't care how hard it shoots, it's not going to shoot through the heavy bone structure of a western elk, you know. And nowadays, I just pick my shots and put my arrows where they need to be, and this recent trip uh, just shot a Montana bull that probably you know weighed eight to 900 pounds. He's a big, mature bull, and... It shot plumb through him, stuck the arrow into the ground on the other side, you know, and uh, so. Yeah, accuracy trumps a lot of other things, doesn't it, Eddie? Definitely, and a well-tuned bow, an arrow that's coming out of there like a bullet will out-penetrate any fishtailing arrow, you know, 10 to 1. Sure. Well, listen, Eddie, it has been absolutely great talking to you. I've had a good time. Uh, Before I let you go, why don't you Uh just... uh, Tell us a little bit, uh, what kind of hunts do you have coming up here in the in the weeks and months ahead, and what sort of things should folks uh, be, you know, kind of be looking for here that we'll see maybe some of your adventures in the magazine here coming up? Well, whitetail season is upon me, and I'm just frothing at the bit right now. November is at the door, and I'm going to right here soon be in a tree. I hunt Kansas whitetail, and I have a, a Iowa whitetail tag. And then after that, you know, I'm going to, gear up for the little whitetails of the desert they are kind of my passion right now i love them i hope to i have a couple of chances to hunt those in january and i'm going to go for whitetail from now for the rest of the year and uh, you know if i even harvest a couple of decent bucks i'll consider myself blessed but the main thing is i'm going to go 
get away from civilization and sit and do some deep thinking in an oak tree somewhere. <laughs> oh, it sounds good, Eddie. I, I wish you the best. And uh, while you're doing the, uh, doing that, uh, when you get it all figured out, you know, the mysteries of life, make sure to get back to us and uh, share share the wisdom, okay? I'm still working on the mysteries of women. I'm not to the mysteries of life yet. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Eddie. Well, listen, thanks okay. again. You have a great afternoon. And uh, we'll be uh, anxious to hear how you make out in the tree stand, okay? Sure. God bless and good hunting. Thanks for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio with editor Christian Burke. For more information on this and other topics, pick up a copy of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on newsstands now.